talk this evening is entitled Task-Centered and Heart-Centered Meditation. <clears throat> and I, I don't know um, if any of you remember, uh, you have to be about my age, on TV in the 50s, where they had Queen for a Day. And they had these very sorrowful people, three of them, on stage before a live audience in which each person would tell their despairing story. Um, I mean, multiple complications and deaths and losses and tragedies. And then they would have an applause meter. Yes. And the one who had the highest applause would be queen for a day. And they would come out with a big robe and a crown and give them a refrigerator or something like that <laughs> for being the most miserable. And the other two, <laughs> they had an additional misery that they didn't win. <laughs> Sometimes the very telling of the story, the embellishing it, you can feel the persona begin to grab the sense of tragic me. Hmm? And it's one that's kind of ennobling. All this has happened to me, and yet I can still raise my head. A little bent, but <laughs> it's still up. Well, it's actually not so different than sitting in on some interviews sometimes. <laughs> because our stories are queen for a day. And some of us are into them. We expect the refrigerator. <laughs> and yet, we sit there, the teachers, and we offer you very petty and standard advice. I mean, how do we know how to fix all this? We haven't a clue what you should do. <laughs> and we see the, the longing in your face for some, this is the answer. And there isn't one. There's just not one. And we say, the best we can do is to conjure up different themes of be aware of it. <laughs> and we, we really try to be very creative. <laughs> but, but I'm afraid it just, that's it. And it leaves us feeling, well, I mean, that's, kind of raw, like, that's it? I mean, I, I sometimes wish I had a bigger bag of tricks and often wish I could sit in, in the interviews of other teachers so that I could pick up a few pointers because I, I feel like I rob you of what you most desperately want and that's a fix 
for the problem. And it's hard to see that need and not be able to offer you much. And yet, that's the answer. And I think think the hardest component of the practice for me to swallow as I was moving along in my own practice was that there's nothing to do. I mean, what what good is awareness? Sometimes I would I would get that kind of frustration, being annoyed or fr- or frustrated or angry or grieving or whatever might be going on, and and then hearing my teacher's voice in my head saying, "Be aware of it," and like, you know, don't I need to do some, work it out or analyze something, something to get in there and I don't know something. And it's, it's, it's a little bit exasperating because our whole life has been about doing something. And we have an enormous faith in technology and resources in this country, technological responses, and we think that any problem can be fixed if we apply the right methodology, the right technology, and the right effort. I mean, look at the Gulf War, for God's sake. This... What do they call it? Shock and awe. We'll we'll get them so amazed of our technology that they'll give up, and we'll sit back on our TV and watch the spot. It's like watching a fireworks display. We're just so proud of what we can do. Bomb a single building in the middle of a city. I mean, technology really has the upper hand, and it's advanced so much further than our wisdom that now we're truly dangerous in terms of a species especially this country we're truly dangerous we're not talking about spears anymore and we're righteous which makes us even more dangerous and we believe that if we apply that to our meditation, if we apply the right when we've, we've grown up in a culture where, you know, we now have electric toothbrushes, we, we don't have to move much. And so we have, okay, come on, Buddhism, give me the science of this thing and let me tackle it. Right? I mean, that's sort of the ambiance of the whole way we might approach it. And because we've lived so embedded in a culture with its technological advances, we, this is just, we're going to fix our spiritual pain with the same force and strategy. Shock and awe. Shock and awe. We, we attempt to work out our problems even before we realize what those problems truly are. We're ready to sit down here and do something. Just give me something to do. We don't really understand what the spiritual problem is. 
but we're ready to do it. <laughs> Apply the method even before we understand the problem. And what Buddhism does is let you understand the problem. That's what it's about. Understanding the problem and not applying the doing, but using the methodology to understand the problem. It's a little bit like not being a mechanic and your car breaks down, you just throw open the hood and you just start beating on the thing or taking out spark plugs or pulling wires and feeling very satisfied with yourself that the car isn't going to about to start up after you're finished. Because we don't understand the problem. We may have read about the problem, but we truly don't understand it. It can't be read about. You see, that's the thing. And everybody has their own take on the problem. Well, it's because you have done this or that or need to do more of this or less of that. And, and you just you get dizzy in listening to the different teachers' approach towards resolution. Because the true problem hasn't been integrated. And you'll see that in the course of your spiritual practice, however many years it goes, how you understand the problem changes multiple times. You understand it one way one week, and then you'll hear a Dharma talk, or you'll have an insight, and suddenly, oh, now I know what it's about. And then a little while later, oh, now, now I re- oh, I see. God, how dumb. God, yes, now I understand. And that just keeps going like that. Keeps going like that. I know that fix-it mentality, my wife and I, we've been together many years, and she looks at the challenge. She's interested in connecting through the challenge when we have a disagreement or something. I'm interested in fixing the problem. This is two different cultures. Venus and Mars or whatever the... I mean, we are like... And I can't not think that way. It's like, okay, there's such and such is going, okay, well, let's do the, We'll do the, the... And she's like totally unsatisfied by that response because what she's trying to get is the, pro, the connection. And I'm moving to the solution. And you know... Even though I can tell you that, if, a, if she were right here and we had, I would still move to the, it's like it doesn't get in somehow. And I don't think, it's not because I don't want to know, it's just that my mind works in terms of that way. And it's because I think of the years of training I've had, not in Buddhism, but in terms of cultural induced problem fixing. I'm getting better. (laughs) So the effort of getting over the problem is built upon developing the right strategy to the problem. I just need the right strategy and then I can get over it. 
I can fix it. I just need to have the right tasks to do. And since we're very task-oriented, feel very accomplished, and we really evaluate ourselves based on our accomplishments in our life, many of us, not all of us, and whether we're productive enough. I mean, we look at our spiritual lives very much like we look at probably at our work life. I put in eight hours today. Now it's time to go to bed. Give it a good shot. What did I accomplish? Well, three walkings and six sittings. (laughs) I mean, it feels that way sometimes. I remember thinking, you know, if I had put in as much time in education as I had in this practice, I'd like to have like three PhDs. And then people would recognize what I had done. (laughs) What kind of resume is it that I sat and walked? <laughs> that's not going to get me kicked upstairs. <laughs> and I, uh, I would find myself in cultures, like when I was in Burma, I was a monk. And every day after my interview, the last thing the teacher would say to me, every single day I had an interview. And every single day he said this, no matter what I said, da 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 da, please try harder. <laughs> Asking ourselves, but to try towards what? Try towards what? See, now we have to have some sense to ask that question. When we ask that question, it opens Pandora's box. Try towards what? But, but just try. You see, well, I, don't ask the what. Just try. And some of our teachers early on really gave us that. So don't, you know, just put in your time. Try towards what? Don't we think we should have some idea? We, we may have some vague notion of a promised land. That's where heaven came from. Some awakening. What does that mean? Awakening into what? Isn't that, shouldn't that be on our five most important questions when you get involved in this? Where is this car taking me? I want to know. Well, you know, it's not that important to know for most of us because we like the journey. The journey is its own reinforcement. That's quite sad, actually. Because what the journey does is it it promises us hope. Just as long as I'm going, it's going from this. And we look at ourselves and we see nothing of any purity or beauty in us. We see our irritation, our annoyance, our lust, our rage, our list of 
queen for a day. We see our queen for a day. So God, you know, just, you know, give me to the promised land. So any journey, I don't care where it takes me, but at least it gives me hope that this is not what I have to deal with. Anywhere but here. And being on a journey keeps us in a struggle because we always have the idea of where the journey's going compared to where we actually are. So there's always a struggle. And then, struggling, the pain of that struggle, which is inevitable, reminds us that we're not yet there, that we have more to do. So we continue to struggle, which continues to create pain, and the pain reminds us that we're not there, so we continue to struggle. Does anybody feel like they're chasing their tail? <laughs> Are we tired yet? Maybe not tired enough. So the journey involves a struggle, and the struggle reinforces the journey and the journeyer. And this is really what we want, to be honest, many of us. We want to feel ennobled, that we're doing something ennobling in our life, that we have a noble cause, and that we're moving to it. We're not so interested in actually arriving We're interested in the odds against us in the battle. The shock and the awe. There's a psychological theory, if I remember from my undergraduate days, called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance says that the greater the struggle, your efforts to get to the goal, the greater you will project the goal to be once you get there, the higher you will evaluate the goal to be based upon the struggle you have in getting there, in arriving. So the struggle itself gives the goal an ennobled value. And since we've reached such a high evaluation of this goal of awakening, our struggle has to be equally as intense and harsh so that we will be up to the goal. May I say that the view of task-centered living is the problem. The view that I have a problem and there's somewhere else to go to fix that problem. That's the view of task-centered meditation. And as I mentioned, we follow that view without considering where the going goes. But 
I can see that I'm changing some way, and incrementally I can see changes in myself. And yes, there are changes. There's no question that as we put in our time, struggle, force all of the methods and techniques into our daily life, we begin to see changes, mileposts, significant changes in personality and temperament and character development. And many of us are satisfied enough with those changes that that is resolution enough. That is, that's enough of a payoff. But it always calls out, calls out for more work. Because if you've changed this far, think what would be like if you put in more effort, more hours, so that you could change even more in that direction. You see how the journey never ends the journey? Please see that. Time never ends itself. Never. But yet our heart still aches. In some ways, when that ache comes up, we rationalize, well, we just haven't put in enough time. We haven't journeyed far enough. Well, we see changes. We're heading in that direction. I'm calmer. I'm clearer. I'm this. I'm that. We just haven't gone far enough in it. And I'll get there. I'll get there. I will get there. And so the improvement continues and continues. But there's always more to do. And we begin to apply formulas. Since we have more to do, and because we have become often very sophisticated in our doing, and we've listened attentively to Dharma talks, we, our journey becomes even more subtle. Perhaps no longer as ambitious or as striving. We see that. We keep hearing the word relaxation, just be, something gets in there, and yeah, okay. And there are more changes that occur from that. But we still bring forth the formula response to problems as they come up. Difficulty in my sitting, knee pain, exasperation, irritation. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. See, that's a formula. This too shall pass. That's a journey. We meet the conditioned mechanical mind with a mechanical formula. We are not yet ready for the heart. We are still trying to work out our salvation. 
And so each time we meet the problem with a mental alternative, as Jan and I was talking about last night, we think our way from it, from the problem, by imposing an alternative to it, some other strategy that allows the journey to continue, and the struggle, and the pain, and the need to do more. But if it's not working, keep trying. Discover the Nobel Prize for Dharma avoidance. Keep trying. If I rest, for God's sake, all I've got's the problem. If I rest, well, I can. That just leaves the problem. And I don't want that. In my heart of hearts, I don't want that. Don't leave me with the problem. Because that's just pain. And my whole approach to spirituality up until this point is that the promised land doesn't contain this. So don't leave me with a problem. And you go into an interview and the teacher leaves you with the problem. And you go back out and figure some formula that he just didn't tell you. Or you conjure up words that he or she might have said but just didn't say. And this is the real solution. It's too shall pass. And every way we move is a denial of truth. Because there's the problem. Still, perhaps not comes back as often, perhaps less intense when it does come back, but there it is. After 20 years, and in the end, we begin to feel spiritually disabled. Is what I'm chasing already here or not? We keep hearing that it's here, and but when we look in the here, all we see is the problem. When we say, that isn't here, that isn't the here I want, that isn't the now that I'm going to accept. So let me start out on another journey. This isn't the now, no, this isn't it. And slowly, slowly, a maturation occurs. In which we get robbed of our technology, of our shock and awe. And we begin to realize whatever we do Whatever formula we impart, whatever corrections we make, 
whatever strategy we impose takes us away from the problem. Where does it take us? It takes us into thought. Because that's the only way you can escape a problem. Because the problem is here. And so we have to escape here in order to escape the problem. So the only way to escape here is through imagination. That's the only way. We either deal with the reality of the problem or we escape from it through thought. Those are the two alternatives. And we begin to see how the words of the thought set up the expectation of the journey and the solution and the heaven. But at the same time, the words of the thought create the struggle because the problem continues. And the words take us to an imaginative future in which the problem doesn't exist. However, the imagination has to crash into the reality of what's still going on at some point. Oh, God, the knee. Oh, it's back again. And these words then don't hold the promise they once did. They don't hold the promise. So what the mind is saying is that I don't like now, so I will pretend to journey from now with my thoughts. Then spend my whole spiritual journey attempting to get back to the now I have intentionally avoided. Do you see this? Do you see how the problem of spiritual journeying is self-made? And pain is the only thing that sobers us. Because as much journeying as I can do away, the more pain I feel in the journey away. And instead of reinterpreting it back that I haven't tried hard enough, I begin to say, wait a minute, something's going on here. I've got to reevaluate this. And I stop. Perhaps for the first time in my life, I stop. Now I am ready for heart-centered meditation. I would have never been ready had I not exposed every strategy of mental avoidance to awareness, to understanding. Through my understanding of those strategies, I am ready to stop. And so the whole journey has really been about understanding how it is that we have created the problem before we're ready to stop the creation. 
Now I have no formulas. And I need to completely reframe the problem. Completely reframe it. And I began to see that I am cocooned within the assumption of self. I'm cocooned within the idea of me. And that every time I try to journey away, it reinforces the cocoon, the hold, the encasement of that conceptualization, of that assumption, of that assumption. For it is one concept deep. Our imprisonment is one idea in depth. And we begin to see that tasking itself creates more cocoon, more isolation. And now, any journeying away, complicating the problem, comes to an end. We have taken away my doing. We have taken away our tasking. But what if I do nothing? I've been doing nothing my whole life. Doing nothing? That doesn't sound like the solution. No, because we haven't been doing nothing. We've been self-indulging. And doing nothing is very different than self-indulging. No longer can I try to think my way out of the problem. No longer can I conjure up hope in relationship to my problem. And I'm not just talking about knee pain. I'm talking about aging, death. Disfigurement. Cancer. I'm talking about queen for day stuff. The meat, not just knee pain, although it's the same problem. So we begin to see that the doing itself is the problem. So now what? Now we perhaps actually listen to the instruction. Maybe for the first time. Relax into. Stop any movement. Non-judgmental awareness. Add nothing to this moment. Allow just what is. We have been saying those things all along. But until each of us are ready to hear that, they seem as if they're an indication of a new journey, something else I have to do. Well, now I have to allow. I don't really want to, but he or she says I should. 
Now I've got to allow, okay? This is very unsatisfactory, but okay. Now I have to allow. Now I have to be. The mind acts and figures out. The heart opens and receives. The mind formulizes, strategizes and journeys. The heart stops. and is present. In the whole of the Buddha journey is from one to the other. And our tasking, our accomplishments, our productivity and our purpose become reframed into caring, kindness, open-heartedness, awareness, patience, really the paramis are all expression of heart-centered meditation, of stopping, of just being still. And I see that tasking has been a defense against the truth. It has been a strategy to perpetuate me, to keep me defined sufficiently so that I feel like I'm moving, so I feel like I'm journeying, so I feel like I'm on my way to something. And all of that is a defense against stillness. Because stillness doesn't seem to define me. It doesn't give me an edge to rub up against. So as long as I struggle, I have an edge to rub up against. As long as I'm journeying, I have a purpose, an edge. And I stay defined. And I stay in my cocoon. And I stay within the assumption of me. For it's just an assumption, remember. And I'm loath to give up that assumption because who am I without that? And that's why I won't move into the problem. Because if I move into the problem without a resolution in sight, without a journey, what's going to protect me from the problem? I have no membrane between myself and this thing. I have no guarantees that I will not be overwhelmed by it, that I will not be defined by it, that the worst thing I think about myself will be true within it. And as long as I stay on a journey, I stay safe with it, at distant, traveling, seeing my mile markers, taking joy in the fact that I'm on my way, but not stopping. Not stopping.
Have you felt the coolness of the air when you walk outside and the beauty of the snow? Maybe you have caught the distant call of a bird, the morning dove. And you feel your heart respond just a little with the freshness of that experience. And you feel affected by it. You feel touched by it. It's like life is so close. And the heart invites us with every call of the bird, with every ray of the sun on our shoulders, with every touch of the wind on our cheek. It calls us, it beckons us. Stop your journey. And so we meditate. And we sit here for a week. And many of us do so in reinforcing the sense of journey in ourselves. But from time to time, because that's normal, many of us do it, it's okay. Nobody's making a mistake here, you're not doing anything wrong. But from time to time, just listen to the bird. From time to time, feel the cool of the coolness of the air, the beauty of the wonderland. And let the heart know its aliveness. Let the heart feel itself being affected. Because this is a journey into our aliveness. not a journey into encasement. And the more affected we are, the more alive we become. And from time to time, ask yourself, where am I going? How am I moving from this moment? Who would I be if I did not move from this problem? Who would I be if I did nothing, if I stopped, if I let this problem affect me, if I gave up the assumption of me and the problem being two separate things, if I really, really listened and allowed myself without any sense of self-protection, to touch the here and now. Because stillness is waiting. It hasn't left you. We have left it. Through our journeys, we leave and lose the very satisfaction that we so seek. It waits. It is here. 
It is not in some distant place. All it requires is the release from the assumption that I need to be any other place than here. And then I can rest. Can we sit for a minute or two? So feel the stillness in the room. That's a brush with the now. No barriers to it. No protection from it. Perfectly safe. as close to us as our own heartbeat. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.